Welcome to Life Church. We are an ex 242 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through His Word and by His Spirit. So we're in Judges chapter 15 this evening. We'll be looking at the life of Samson, the things that we can learn from him. I was thinking about this on the way home from work. It is great that we have things like this. Because even though some of us really only learn things the hard way, sometimes it's best to learn things from someone else's hard way than having to have your own hard way to learn the lesson. And uh, there's so many things in Samson's life that, that we can take courage from, that we can, um, that we can learn from, so many things that we can put in place to help avoid making the same kinds of mistakes that Samson made. But it is such a privilege to read God's word and to see what he has to say to us. So, so the plan is, I know that we're going to do one chapter a session, but we're going to do 40, we're into 15 and 16a, yeah? So we'll do, we'll do chapter 15 and then just the beginning of uh, chapter 16, because next week is the last session and I really want to spend that time looking at Samson's encounter with Delilah and what happens after that. So, Judges chapter 15, I'll read it through. Bless your word to us, Lord. Later on, at that time of wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. He said, I'm going to my wife's room, but her father would not let him go in. I was so sure you thoroughly hated her, he said, that I gave her to your friend. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Samson said to them, This time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. He then fastened a torch to each pair of tails, lit the torches, and let the foxes loose in the standing corn of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and standing corn together with the vineyards and olive groves. When the Philistines asked who did this, they were told Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his friend. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. Samson said to them, since you've acted like this, I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. Then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Etam. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. The men of Judah asked, why have you come to fight us? We've come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave to the rock of Etam and said to Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. They said to him, we've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed, they answered. We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and led him up from the rock. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting. The spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, with a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. 
with a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. He's quite fond of these little riddly poem things, isn't he? When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramath-Lehi. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, You've given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned, and he revived. So the spring was called En-Hakore, and it is still there in Lehi. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Uh, chapter 16. One day Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. The people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night saying, at dawn we'll kill him. But Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. Then he got up took hold of the doors of the city gate together with the two posts and tore them loose, bar and all. He lifted them up to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Absolutely unnecessary flex from Samson there. But there we go. <coughs> so the story continues. The drama continues in this man's life. It is, it is, like I said last week, an episode of Middle East Enders. It is all kicking off the whole time. So last week we saw that Samson um, got married and spent seven days in the wedding feast and because his, the companions that he had at the time uh, threatened his, his wife, that she managed to get the secret, secret to the riddle. They told him the riddle. Samson was really annoyed and then Samson went off to a different city, killed 30 men and took their clothes. This genuinely did not dawn on me until I was reading it today. Yeah, didn't dawn on me until today. So Samson has already broken some of his Nazarite vows. But it didn't dawn on me until I was reading it today that he broke it then. Because he killed those men. That wasn't part of the Nazarite vows. But after he killed them, he took their clothes. So he would have touched dead bodies, which he wasn't allowed to do. I didn't, didn't see that. This is why I love the Bible. Because you can read something, you can talk about it, you can dig deep, but there is so much more to see. Don't ever get, don't ever get into a rut and thinking, oh, I've read this story before, I know it all. You do not know it all. It's so layered. So Samson really, um, really playing around sometimes with the, the rules that, that were, were given to him before he was born. And so we get to chapter 15 and... Um, and these, these phrases just really grab my attention. So he goes in, he comes back to visit his wife. He doesn't know that, he doesn't know what happened at the end of the chapter last week. So he hasn't read Judges chapter 14, where his, uh, his father-in-law gives his wife away because Samson storms off in anger. We saw that at the end of last week's session. So he doesn't know any of this has happened. He's come back to see his wife and he is told that, well, she's not actually your wife anymore because I gave her to the best man at the wedding so but it's okay because I've got another daughter because that's acceptable it's not acceptable at all so instead of dealing with it maturely uh, Samson catches some foxes and sets them on fire basically but the thing that, that jumps out at me and the thing that I want to challenge us with um, before we we really get stuck into this is the phrases that keep being used so Samson says this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines, verse 3. 
Then the Philistine says, who did this? And then they burn um, his, what would have been his wife. It's very confusing. What do we call her? Maybe his wife and her father. And then Samson says, since you've acted like this, I won't stop till I get my revenge on you. So he kills loads of men. And then the Philistines come to Lehi and they say, we've come to take Samson prisoner to do to him as he did to us. And then they say, they, the men from Judah go to Samson and say, why, why have you done this? And he says, I merely did to them what they did to me. And it is this kind of tit for tat, back and forth. Um, it's what I call the revenge spiral. Revenge is a downward spiral. The thing that strikes me about this is the instance with the 300 foxes. We read it quickly. So Samson caught 300 foxes, tied them tail to tail in pairs, fastened a torch to each pair of tails, lit the torches, and let the foxes loose. I mean, it's cruelty to animals beyond anything else. But how long would it take you to catch 300 foxes? Yeah, how long would it take you to do that? Once you've caught 300 foxes, how long would it take you to assign them in pairs and tie their tails together? I mean, that's going to be tricky. Then, to tie a torch to each tail and to set the torch, it's not one of the torches, just imagine Samson with a torch, the batteries aren't working, not that kind of torch, torch with fire. To tie that to the tail, set it on fire and set them loose in a field, how long would that take? This is, not, this is not something Samson did in an afternoon or even a few afternoons. This would have taken time. And this is the issue. When we allow the, the sense of injustice to consume us, when we allow our anger to get the best of us, it takes over our lives. And if we're not careful, we get to the point where maybe we're not tying, through, get, trying to find 300 foxes and tying their tails together. But we are also in some way being destructive to people around us. Maybe we don't do that, and please don't get foxes and tie their tails together. What's that all about? But maybe, maybe we, instead of, of, of doing the, the kind of groundwork to catch the foxes, maybe we do the same kind of thing, but we spend time thinking about how we're going to make someone else feel the way they made us feel. Or we start to play through those scenarios in our heads. Or maybe like me, confession, you do that thing where you spend a lot of time imagining conversations with other people. Too much time imagining conversations with other people. And when you imagine a conversation, it always goes your way, doesn't it? Because it's in your imagination. So it always goes your way. I was listening to a podcast called, um, the, the guy in the podcast, Dr. Scott Lyons, wrote a book called Addicted to Drama. And he was talking about the signs that you can spot in, in yourself and in other people that will tell you or tell you about them or about yourself that you are addicted to drama and something that you need to work on. And uh, I was listening to the podcast because I was thinking, well, I'm a teacher. Sometimes there's a bit of drama there. I'm a church leader. There's never any drama being a church leader. But sometimes maybe there might be. So this might be helpful. But actually, I was surprised. <laughs> I was surprised. Um, for the things that I learned about myself while I was listening to this podcast. But he coined a phrase that I'd never heard before because he made the phrase up. He, he talked about weaponized empathy. Weaponized empathy. And he said, weaponized empathy is where you, if somebody does something to you, and even if they apologize, it is not enough because you want them to feel the way that they made you feel. And so you find ways 
to make them feel the way that they made you feel when they hurt you. And he calls it weaponized empathy. And I thought, that is, that's interesting because I can remember a time in my life where I did do that, where I wanted someone to feel the way that they made me feel. And even if they apologized, I still wanted them to, I was okay with the apology, but it wasn't enough. I wanted them to feel the way that they made me feel. And it's not good because that takes you into a spiral. Where does that end? Where does that end if the other person is doing the same thing? And then instead of, instead of, of responding in a positive way, they respond in a negative way. And so we have this situation that spirals out of control because there was no one who said enough. No one said enough. We shouldn't have done that. We're sorry. I mean, that's the whole story of Samson might have ended a little bit differently if anyone said that. But you would have thought that the man who had prophetic words spoken over his life before he was born, who was called to, to lead Israel, to judge Israel at the time, you would have thought that there would have been a different way to deal with the things that he dealt with. But this is the way that he was, and this is how he dealt with it. So how do we deal with that kind of anger and the kind of injustice that we feel sometimes? Proverbs chapter 15 verse 1 says this, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And I have to tell you, a harsh word is way easier than a gentle answer. It's easier. It's easier to respond with a harsh word. Sometimes it feels good to respond with a harsh word. But actually, Proverbs is very clear. A gentle answer turns away wrath. And I don't know if you've ever ex experienced where you, want, where you wanted a fight with someone, but they just, they just weren't giving you anything back. They just weren't giving you anything that, that you could have a fight with back. And so you were as angry as you could have been, you were as, as loud as you could be, but they were really gentle back. It, it is frustrating. <laughs> it was frustrating. It's not like that anymore. It was frustrating, but now Lisa just fights back and it's great. <coughs> A gentle answer turns away wrath. You see, we have the power. We have the power to prevent situations spiraling out of control. But it isn't easy, and we have to depend on the Spirit of God to help us. Just like in Samson's life, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power, and he was able to do supernaturally things that he couldn't do in his normal strength. I believe in those moments that we can trust that the Spirit of the Lord can come on us in power to help us to prevent situations from spiraling out of control. Some verses about anger in uh, Ephesians chapter 4. I don't have this. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26. It says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. James chapter 1 verse 19 says, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. For a man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. We, we looked really closely at the issue of anger in our Just 10 series across our life churches. So I'm not going to go into too much detail here. I just want to wrap this um, revenge spiral up by saying, how do we deal with, with anger? Do we, do we express it? Do we bottle it in? The answer to both of those is no. Psalm 139 says this, Search me, Lord. Know my heart. 
Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Romans 12 verses 18 to 20 says this, if possible, as far as it depends on you, and that is the key line, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. I remember as a teenager reading that, and I had a, quite a vivid, still have a vivid imagination of thinking, this is great. I will feed my enemy, and I'll give him a drink, and I'll actually be pour, pouring burning coals on his head, and that is great. But that's not what it means. Um, commentators disagree on what, on what that means, but the general sense is, hopefully, in the way that we respond, there will be a sense of shame in that person, a sense of, of regret for the way that they have behaved. But actually, we are not responsible for the way that other people behave. We are responsible for our own behavior. And so in a, in a circumstance like that, we have to make the choice, what am I going to do? Am I going to join this mad spiral and allow this to get out of control? Or am I, am I going to be a mature believer, a mature a person who follows Jesus, am I going to say, Jesus, will you help me? And am I going to answer with a gentle answer? In, a, in the Star Wars film, A New Hope, I'm going to quote Yoda. Uh, Yoda's talking to Luke about dealing with anger, and he says this, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, and hate leads to the dark side. We don't want to go to the dark side. And so Samson allows this whole thing to spiral out of control. He viciously slaughters some of the Philistines. And now we get to this really interesting situation where the Philistines come and they camp in Judah. And their presence is quite strong and quite intimidating. And the men of Judah see that the Philistines are there and, and they're quite intimidated by what's happening. And so they say, what, why are you here? And they say, we've come to get Samson because of what he did to us. And so 3,000 men from Judah, 3,000 men from Judah go to see Samson. So these are, these are Israelite brothers, yeah? 3,000 of them go. And they say this, this one line, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? They have totally accepted the status quo. They've totally accepted that these invaders, that these people who don't follow God, aren't interested in anything to do with the God of Israel, are, are kind of the big bullies of this scenario. They have just accepted this. And they say to Samson, don't you realize that they are rulers over us? Samson says, I merely did to them what they did to me. And so they say, we've, we've come to tie you up and to take you and to hand you over to them. And, uh, and it occurs to me, you know, it's John Eldridge who says that in every good story, there is an element of the gospel. And in this story here, in this narrative here, what you have is someone being betrayed by his own people and being handed over to the enemy to be killed on their behalf, to set them free. I just find that interesting. His own people are saying, we're going to tie you up and we're going to hand you over to Samson. Now, he has this little back and forth of them. He says... 
promise me you won't kill me. And they say, we won't kill you. And I wonder if inside they felt a bit better about what they were doing because they were saying, well, like we've all done, well, at least we didn't kill him. We handed him over to the enemy, but we didn't kill him. It's the lesser of two evils. But the lesser of two evils is still evil. The lesser of two evils is still evil. You know, the story of Joseph takes me, when I think about the lesser of two evils, the story of Joseph is always strong in my mind because you've got his brothers who decide that they were going to throw him in a pit and then they're going to kill him. And that was the plan. And then when Reuben goes for a walk, who knows why, um, I think it was Judah who said, who saw the, the kind of the train, the, the, the traders passing and says, hey, instead of killing him, why don't we sell him? Because if we kill him, we'll have a dead body to deal with. But if we sell him, we'll have some cash. And cash is better. So they decide to sell their brother. And I imagine they sold their own brother into slavery. The lesser of two evils is still evil. God is not impressed because you didn't do what you could have done. God is not impressed with me because I stand and say, I did this and I'm sorry, but I could have done this. That, that, that is not impressive to God. What is impressive to God is a heart that is surrendered to him, that says, here are the things, yeah, I could do all of these things, but actually I just want to pursue you. I just want to make you happy. I just want to put a smile on your face, God. And so the lesser of two evils is still evil. And they handed, they handed their brother, as it were, over to the enemy. So the Philistines come towards Samson shouting. And he is not intimidated by them. The Bible says the spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax and the bindings dropped from his hands. And so <laughs> the spirit of the Lord comes on him. And what happens to him? When the spirit of the Lord comes on him, he is tied up. But when the Spirit of the Lord arrives in power on him, he is free. The Bible says wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's what the Bible says. And I think it would do us well to remember that on our, on our, in our gatherings, when we meet on a Sunday, when we gather to pray, when we're in our life group, wherever we are, that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And I'm all for, I'm all for you know, those moments in a, in a service where we... We have an appeal and God is saying something and people respond to prayer. But wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we can embrace that freedom and engage with that freedom at any time and at any moment. We don't need a special song or a special prayer or a specially anointed man. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And so Samson looks around for a weapon and he finds a fresh jawbone from a donkey. It's just, this story is just great, isn't it? it is, you couldn't write this stuff. He finds a rotting carcass of a donkey. And so he rips the jawbone off. And then that is his weapon. In my notes I said, it was moist. I don't know why I said that in my notes. I think because it says fresh. It was a fresh jawbone. 
So he finds his bone, and then this is his weapon. This is the weapon that he's going to use. So the interesting thing again, is Samson breaking his Nazarite vow here? Because what he's doing is he's touching something that is dead. And again, did not ever think about that until there was a time I was doing a kid's camp. And uh, I did the story of Samson in a kid's camp. Why, why not? Because it's great. And uh, at the end of the week, we were doing a big recap. So I was giving points to the boys and girls if they could remember things from the story. And one of the questions was, can you tell me when Samson broke the rules? And people were saying, when he ate the honey from the lion. Yes, well done, that's good. And so when, you know, spoilers, when he, he allows um, Delilah to seduce him to the point where he cuts his hair. That was, that's the big one. Yes, well done. This one kid came forward and he said, when he killed a thousand men. And, you know, you're wrestling with that. Well, yeah, murder is not great. But in the context of this story, that he wasn't breaking, he wasn't breaking his vows. And this little boy looked at me in front of everyone and totally owned me. He said, yes, but he did it with the donkey's jawbone. And the donkey was clearly dead. And I genuinely had never thought about that until that moment when that seven-year-old kid schooled me in front of everyone else. And I said, yes, you get all the points because I've never thought of that before. But maybe the Nazarite vow, when it talked about not touching anything dead, some people think, uh, maybe it just referred to humans, so not touching a dead human being. Um, but maybe it also applied to animals, and maybe Samson was a bit free and loose with the whole concept of um, what, his, what his vow to God meant. And we can see that, that his approach to life and his approach to the things that he should have held sacred were a bit fluid. So maybe this didn't concern him at all. But he picks up this donkey's jawbone and against military men, against soldiers, he takes a thousand men down. I mean, that is impressive on any level, really. He takes a thousand men down. And uh, I'm assuming there were more of them. And I'm assuming after a thousand people fell, and there was just a guy holding, holding a donkey's carcass, killing people with it, that they thought, right, we've had enough, we're out. And Samson makes his poem up with a donkey's job when I've made donkeys of them, with a donkey's job when I've killed a thousand men. And um, maybe he wanted to be a singer-songwriter. Maybe that's, maybe that's what he wanted all along. Maybe. He throws away the jawbone. Please do not miss the significance of this. And please, when you read Scripture, read it slowly. Just take some time and read Scripture slowly. Because this is what I want to challenge us with today. Uh, one of the things I want to challenge us with. Not the donkey's job or not the killing of a thousand men. But verse 17, it says, When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramoth Lehi. Don't make more of the instrument than you should. He didn't then say, from now on, guys, when we go to war, everyone needs to take a donkey's jawbone with them. This is, this is clearly the way to do it, because I've killed a thousand people with this thing. This is an incredible weapon. And there weren't people around him who saw him do it and think, you know what, this is the next new military strategy we need to employ, because that looks amazing. It served its purpose for that time, and then he threw it away. It served its purpose and he threw it away. Sometimes we can hold on to things that have served their purpose and we need to put them away and to move on to the next thing that God has for us. And sometimes we can elevate something to a level of, 
of being sacred and being holy and being important that really is, thus, is just a donkey's jawbone and we've used it and we can throw it away. I've not had to, ha not have to deal with this kind of thing, thankfully, but I know people who you know, have had massive, huge issues in a church uh, because they moved the piano from the left side to the right. I mean, how dare, how dare they? How dare they? And what is that? That is someone making more of a donkey's jawbone than they should. Why does it matter which side of the room the piano is? But we can get like that. We can get connected to a, a mode of doing something, a method of doing something, or something that, something that we like, or something that is sentimental and nostalgic to us. And there's nothing wrong with sentimentality and nostalgia, but when that becomes the thing, we've lost the plot a little bit. And so Samson, Samson throws it away and I encourage us not to make more of the instrument that we should, whatever that instrument is. He throws it away and he's incredibly thirsty, a bit like me. And he says, God, I've done this great victory. You have allowed your servant to have this great victory. Must I now die of thirst? And I love the way that God honors him and just provides water for him out of a rock. Out of a little hollow, water comes, he drinks it, and he's revived. And then there's a throwaway verse at the end of the chapter. Samson led Israel for 20 years. Samson led Israel for 20 years. And then we jump into chapter 16. Samson, honestly. Starts off, one day Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. We talked about this last week. We talked about what are you looking at? What are you allowing your eyes to see? And he sees a prostitute. And then he doesn't just see a prostitute, but he decides this is something, this is something I want to get involved in. And so he goes in to spend the night with her. And again in Samson's life, and, and the kind of the warning is for us as well. He is allowing his eyes to make decisions for him. Sin starts with his eyes. Your eyes feed the soul, it says in Matthew chapter 6. When you allow yourself, what you allow yourself to see, sorry, can enhance bitterness, can enhance jealousy, can enhance anger, can enhance lust. And so we need to be careful with what we allow ourselves to see and what we choose to look at. Because once it gets in, it becomes, it's a thought, and then after we dwell on it for a while, it becomes an action. I found it interesting that in the Old Testament, when God would show prophets a vision, sometimes he would show them something, and then he would say, what do you see? And then they would say what they saw. So Jeremiah 1:11, the word of the Lord came to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? And then Jeremiah says, I see the branch of an almond tree. And then God would explain to him what that meant. In Amos chapter 7, verse 8, says, The Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? And Amos says, I see a plumb line. And then God responded, I'm setting a plumb line among my people. I will spare them no longer. Because sometimes what we see is not actually there. Sometimes what we see isn't actually what we need to see. And God is asking them 
this is what I am showing you, but are you seeing what you are supposed to be seeing? So tell me what you see. And then when they responded with what they saw, he would then respond to what they said. He didn't just show them a picture and then speak from them. He showed them a picture. He asked them to clarify what they saw first, and then he explained what they were seeing to them. Has anybody ever seen those magic eye pictures? You know, the, the kind of, there's just like swirly lines on a page and you stare at it for ages and then, and then an amazing 3D image apparently happens. I say apparently because I think I've seen one in my life and it took me five days of staring at this page. I was so determined to see one. It was all the rage at one point. People were buying books of the stuff and those people going, yep, yep, yep. And I just struggled to see one. I don't know why it didn't work for me. But the thing is, it's right there, but it only comes into focus if you stare at it long enough and people had loads of, uh, loads of techniques like cross your eyes or you know, just drift off in your head or whatever the technique was to try and see this, this hidden picture. There's so many things that are below the surface that we need to be aware of, but to win the battle of the mind, we need to ensure that our minds are fit to fight and that means we need to ensure that they are renewed. And being careful about what we see will help us with that. Discipline is also a key. Making strong decisions, and I'll come to this in a moment. Making strong decisions about what we see and what we allow ourselves to see. Uh, fasting is, a, is an interesting one for me. I find, I know that fasting is good and it's a spiritual discipline and so I will engage with it. It's not my favorite, I will say. It's not my favorite spiritual discipline. Um, eating food should be a spiritual discipline, but unfortunately, it's the other way around. So fasting is an interesting discipline because you, you are deliberately saying no to something that is good. You're deliberately saying no to something that you like uh, in order to just spend some time with God. But I find a byproduct of that is when I fast and when I'm deliberately saying no to something that I like, inevitably, later on, what I find is it's easier to say no to things that I know I should say no to. Because what have I done? I've disciplined myself. I've disciplined myself. And it's not an easy thing, but actually we mustn't underestimate the, the power that simple spiritual disciplines have in our lives. Discipline of worship, discipline of celebration. We covered these in a series uh, here at Life Church. We mustn't we mustn't underestimate the power of the spiritual disciplines. So what do you see? The people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. And the reason Samson was there is that he did not make a good choice. And my encouragement to us is make good choices. I mean, it needs to be on a t-shirt. Make good choices. It's something that I say to myself. Sometimes I would just say, Nick, make good choices. And it's usually when I open the fridge. <laughs> Nick, make good choices. Or it's at work when someone offers me something to eat and I've already said I'm not going to have it. Nick, make good choices. Can you see that food is a bit of an issue? I was in a, um, I was in a Brazilian barbecue restaurant. Have you ever been to a Brazilian barbecue restaurant? It is. It's just like being at the wedding feast of the lamb, I imagine, is what it's going to be like. Um, it's a place where they just continually bring you meat. You have a card that's red on one side and green on the other. 
and you have the green side. If the green side is up, then they know that whenever they're bringing meat around, they bring it to you. So, I mean, I don't think I'd turn my card over ever, to be fair. So they kept bringing meat, and it was great. And then I remember saying to myself, I'm not having any more, because I, I was full. I'm not having any more. I turned my card over to red. And I said to, I was with my work colleagues, and I said, right, I'm done. I'm not having any more. I was obviously the last person to say this. I said, I'm done, I'm not having any more. And the guy came over to the table, with the, and he saw that my thing was red, and there wasn't anybody else who had a green card, but he still said, I don't know if why they do it. it, the card's pointless, obviously. He still said, would you like some lamb? And I'd already said, I'm not having any more. And I heard myself, it was like I had an out-of-body experience. I heard myself say, oh, yes, please, that, that would be great. And I, I didn't understand what was happening because it already said, I don't want any more. I'm not eating any more. I didn't make a good choice. It was delicious. I didn't make a good choice, though. I should have stopped eating a long time before. And Samson does not make a good choice here. He sees a woman. He could have thought, yeah, no, and then carried on his way. But he decided, uh, yeah. And so he went in after this prostitute. He could have walked away. But just like earlier, while he was catching 300 foxes, at any point during that whole endeavor, he could have thought, this is ridiculous. I'm, I'm just going to take these foxes to a fox sanctuary or, or whatever they had in Israel at the time. I'm going to give these foxes away as presents. I don't know. He could have walked away at any point, but he didn't make a good choice. God help us to make good choices. Good choices. And the thing is, sometimes we, we don't make good choices because we've not thought through all of the consequences. We've not thought through, if I do this, where does this take me? And sometimes it's as simple as, I'm not going to do this because I know that God says I shouldn't. And then sometimes it's the, if I do this, where does this take me? What are the consequences? What are the things right at the end of this decision that I'm making? Samson clearly did not consider any of these things. And so people, people saw him. We don't know who saw him. It just says the people of Gaza were told. I don't know, maybe they had some kind of internal tannoy system. Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. I don't know if he snuck in, but someone saw him. And God always sees us. Wherever we are and whatever we're doing, God sees us. Where I grew up in, in Guyana, um, my dad was a taxi driver. My dad did lots of things, but taxi driver was one of the things he would do. And he'd also do a school run in the morning, pick loads of kids up. He had a Ford um, estate and he would get like, I don't know, 18 children in that car. That is not an exaggeration either. Get 18 children in that car, drop them off at school and pick them up. So, so people in the area knew my dad. My surname is McDavid, so my dad's nickname was Mr. Mac. And I tell you, I could not get away with anything anywhere. Probably because um, my dad's black, my mum's white, so I kind of stood out in the environment that I grew up in, really. So um, I probably wouldn't be able to get away with anything anyway. But people, strangers would say to me, are you Mr. Mac's son? 
I would think, this is just not fair. I, I just wanted to throw some stones or, I don't know, play by the river. But this is not fair. I knew that whatever I did, wherever I did, someone would see me and someone would know who I was. Think about that. Extrapolate that to a God who sees everything we do. And when I say that, and whenever I say God sees everything that you do, it always feels to me, <laughs> it may not feel like this to you, it always feels to me a little bit like, ooh, God sees everything I do. Because my brain will instantly go to the things I think, oh, I really wish God didn't see that. But let me tell you, and I just, I just want to take a moment to encourage you this evening. God sees all the good things that you do. He sees all the good things that you do. Second Chronicles chapter 16 verse 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. He sees you. And if your heart is fully committed to him, he is looking for you to strengthen you. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He sees you. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10 says this, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. He sees you. But it's okay. Because he also sees the good things that you do. And so when you hear, when you hear those, those words or when you think about the fact that God sees you, don't take it as a condemnation. Take it as an encouragement. He doesn't miss a thing. He doesn't close his eyes. He doesn't miss a thing. I'm singing a song in my head now. It's not good. He doesn't miss a single thing. Two more things. <clears throat> they surrounded the place. They lay in wait for him all night to the city gate. They made no move during the night, saying, A dawn will kill him. But Samson only lay there until midnight the middle of the night, and then he got up and left. And my challenge when I was reading this was we need to be people who take the opportunity when it's presented to us. They could have trapped him, and it may have been, it may have been that the Spirit of the Lord did not come upon him in strength, in power. They could have, they could have trapped him, but they decided that they were going to wait until morning, and then... He wasn't there in the morning because he got up in the middle of the night. I'll talk about what he did in a moment. We have to take the opportunities when they present themselves. Procrastination, it said, is the thief of time. But I think it also is the thief of opportunities. When we put things off, we can miss an incredible opportunity that may be presented to us. A long time ago, there was a, a young guy who started working in a hardware store in America. And uh, because it was a, an old hardware store, this is in the late 1800s, because it was an old hardware store, there was lots and lots of items in the basement of the store that weren't getting sold. And so this young guy, was, he was smart enough to recognize that maybe if we gathered all these bits and pieces and, uh, and we, we, we had a little sale and just let people buy them for little bits of money, maybe we could, we could get rid of all this junk and also make some money. And so he got a table out. He asked his manager, he got a table out, put some of the stuff on and said, we'll sell these, we'll sell these bits and pieces for 10 cents. And, uh, and the sale was a success. 
So his manager said, you can do it again if you want to. So he did it again, and again it was a success. And so this young man said to his manager, maybe we should start a store. Maybe we should set up a store where we just sell things that, that just like brick and brack type things, things that we can sell really cheaply for like 10 cents or 5 cents. Uh, I will run the store, and you can provide the capital, and then we can make a business of it. And his manager said, this plan will never work because you can't find enough items to sell for 10 cents. That's what he said. So the young man was quite disappointed, but he decided he was going to do it anyway, and he left and set his own business up. <clears throat> In 1979, he set up his first store. His name was Frank Woolworth. Uh, later on, his boss, his boss said this, as near as I can figure it out, Every word I used in turning Woolworth down has cost me about a million dollars. Um, at its prime, Woolworths, as you know it, Woolworths was worth, in today's equivalent, 800 million pounds as a business. I mean, it doesn't exist anymore, but at its prime, 800 million pounds. He had an opportunity, but he couldn't see. He couldn't see what the opportunity was being presented to him, and he regretted it. Bless him. There's a, there's a scriptural opportunity that I have never understood, never understood. I've preached on it many times, but I still don't understand the thinking behind it. It is in, in the story of the Exodus. So the plagues are happening. The, first it was the river of blood, and then it was a plague of frogs. There are frogs everywhere. The Bible makes it very clear that they were everywhere, everywhere. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, hey, I'm going to pray to God and we can get rid of these frogs. You just need to tell me when. And Pharaoh says, tomorrow. Why? Why tomorrow? I mean, I would have said, I mean, right now, this, this very minute, right now, please, no more frogs. But Pharaoh says, tomorrow. And maybe is a sense of control. Yeah, I, I'm going to put up with it for a bit longer. Tomorrow. We'll, do, we'll deal with it tomorrow. Why did he say tomorrow? I don't know. But procrastination will cause us to miss incredible opportunities. And so we have to take opportunities when they are presented. My issue with this is when I'm presented with an opportunity, I think sometimes, my wife will agree, I overthink it. So I overthink. And then I overthink it. And then I overthink it. And then three years later... <laughs> I'm still overthinking it, and the opportunity is gone. Thankfully, God doesn't say, right, you've blown it now, Nick. I'm not doing anything with you ever again. Thank you, Lord. Samson leaves in the middle of the night, and he, we're going to end with this, and he, he takes the gates with him. He gets to the gates of the city to leave, and they've locked the gates. Now, you imagine the gates would have had two big, huge posts that go into the ground, and then two big gates, and then a big bar across holding those two, those two uh, gates closed, gates together, so that people can come in or go out, actually. And so in, in, in those times, you'd have a city like that with walls, and even if the city didn't have any walls, the houses would be built in a way that, that kind of went around. So the gates would be like the only way that you could get into the inside of the city. Samson takes all of it. I mean, this is an incredible feat of strength, really. He takes it all. He takes the bar, he takes the two gates, and he takes the posts that were holding the gates. He puts them on his shoulders, and he carries them up a hill. 
I mean, if taking, if taking the gates wasn't enough, he carries them up a hill and then leaves them there and goes home. I find that, I find that amusing. But why would he take the gates? The gates were, were the, the, the kind of way in and out of the city. The gates were the way that they controlled the commerce. They controlled what went in and what went out. Samson taking the gates away was basically effectively for, for the time that the gates weren't there was destroying that city because they had, they had no way to prevent people coming in who they didn't want to come in. They had no way to close the, the, kind of the city down at nighttime. Samson was destroying the city. I do find it interesting, though, that it doesn't say at any point in that bit, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. It doesn't say that. But yet he still, it was still unnaturally strong. So it's still a feat of strength. But it doesn't say that God helped him. I can only assume this is the grace of God. Because Samson at this point doesn't really deserve to have the Spirit of God on him. He's just left a prostitute to leave the city. So it's not like he's you know, really close to Jesus at the time. He's, he's living a life that is worthy of, of, of any kind of gifting, really. But the thing that comes back to me when we look at the life of Samson is just how many times God will use us despite our weaknesses. God will use us despite our weaknesses. Samson seems to be completely out of control, and yet God is still using him to accomplish his purposes. It is the grace of God. And it's not just the grace of God to Samson. It is the grace of God to us because he continues to use us despite our weaknesses. It is not an excuse to just do what we want, of course. But it is, it is a moment to recognize that God has such an incredibly tender heart towards us and I am encouraged by that. I'm encouraged by that. So let me recap. Revenge is a downward spiral. Help us to make great decisions, Lord. The lesser of two evils is still evil. Let's not judge by what we do by what we could have done. Let's judge what we do by what would God want me to do. In this moment, in this circumstance, what would God want me to do? Not, here's what I could have done. Let's not hold on to things for longer than we, we need to, whether that be a way of doing something, a way of engaging with, maybe, maybe even a way of engaging with God. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the book, Sacred Pathways. Changed my life. <clears throat> Obviously, Scripture changes my life. But there's, a lot, there's lots of books that just help you to think differently about about the way, that, um, the way that we behave and the way that we interact with others. And there's a guy called Gary Thomas, Dr. Gary Thomas, who wrote a book called Sacred Pathways. I'm not getting any commission for this, all right. I don't know him. Um, but he wrote a book called Sacred Pathways about the, the ways that we connect to God. And he, in his thinking, he says there are nine different ways that people connect to God, that people feel, when I do this, I feel really connected to God. And, uh, and he lists the nine things, and then you can read them through, and you can, there's a little quiz, I love a little quiz, to figure out, you know, what, what, personality, what personality type you are. I love all of those things. I find it hilarious. But there's a quiz to do to tell you what kind of, what sacred pathway um, you find yourself more, more connected to God. And I found it so, 
so liberating, I guess, in a sense, to discover that this is okay, that going out for a walk and being out in nature, I do feel really connected to God there, and that is okay. And, and it doesn't have to be when I'm stood in a service with my hands raised in a worship session, I do feel really connected to God there, but I also feel really connected to God outside. And he makes the point that some people feel really connected um, intellectually when they read scripture and they're studying and they're getting all the, the meaty bits that they feel really connected to God. And some people feel really connected to God when they follow a liturgy, when they, they're, they're kind of really traditional in their thinking, and, and that really helps them to focus on God. And that really helps me because I grew up in a, in a traditional setting. I had to go to Pentecost, a Presbyterian church every Sunday morning, and I would choose to go to Pentecostal church in the afternoon. And the two things were so far removed from each other in, in my experience that I got to a point where I thought that this was the way and that this was just so old and, and just outdated and they didn't really know what they were on about. But this is how you connect to Jesus. You don't, really feel, you don't really connect to Jesus until you've had a worship time where your clothes are drenched because you're sweating and you've been going at it so hard. It was in a tropical country as well, so that helped. Um, and that was, that was my, unintentionally, that's what I thought, Yeah. And then I remember reading the book and thinking, well, maybe this is how those people feel most connected to God. And that surely is okay. That is okay. So don't discard, don't hold on to the, in the instrument for longer than you should. Discard the instrument if it is something that is holding you back or you know that it has the potential to hold you back from everything that God has for us. Be careful what you allow yourself to see because what we allow to go in moves from being what we see to being a thought, and then if we dwell on that thought, it becomes an action, and then actions have consequences. Make good choices. Let's be people who make good choices. In small things, we make good choices because when we continually make small good choices, we're able to make big good choices. Take your opportunity when it's presented as well. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarrington.com.